This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Fatigue, weakness, loss of appetite. These are very vague and nonspecific symptoms. And unfortunately, relatively common complaints our patients describe to us. However, they may be the presenting symptoms of adrenal insufficiency. And if untreated, serious complications can develop. Maybe the most serious being an adrenal crisis. Adrenal insufficiency is relatively uncommon, and unless we think about it, we're likely to either make a delayed diagnosis or possibly miss the disorder altogether. So today, we're going to get educated on the adrenal glands, and today's topic is adrenal insufficiency. We'll review its symptoms, the recommended evaluation, and management with Dr. Irina Bankos, an endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Irina, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start by getting a little review of the purpose of the adrenal glands and the hormones they typically do produce in healthy individuals. Well, I love talking about adrenal glands. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> adrenal glands are two tiny little organs situated on the top of the kidneys. And to start from sort of like the bird's eye view, Adrenal glands are separated into adrenal cortex and adrenal medulla. Adrenal cortex, in turn, is separated into three layers. Zona fasciculata, which is producing cortisol. Zona glomerulosa, which is producing aldosterone. And zona reticularis, that is producing androgens or DHA. Adrenal glands regulated by pituitary gland, and pituitary gland is regulated by the hypothalamus. And to remind everyone in the audience, there is a feedback mechanism going on, and cortisol is a major hormone in this feedback mechanism. So how common is adrenal insufficiency? It depends which type. Overall, the primary adrenal insufficiency is very uncommon. Secondary adrenal insufficiency is a bit more common, and glucocorticoid-induced adrenal insufficiency, the most common type of adrenal insufficiency, actually seen in 1% of all population. Why am I saying 1%? Well, because 1% of population are prescribed exogenous glucocorticoids, so they must have glucocorticoid-induced adrenal insufficiency. So can you review the potential causes? Absolutely. Well, let's start with the most fascinating adrenal insufficiency, which is primary adrenal insufficiency. What is primary adrenal insufficiency? Whenever we use the word primary in endocrinology, it means the primary organ producing cortisol is destroyed or somehow impacted and is not working properly. So with primary adrenal insufficiency, adrenal glands are incapable of cortisol production. The most common reason for that would be autoimmune adrenalitis or Addison disease. We use Addison's disease a a lot quite incorrectly because actually when Thomas Edison described Edison's disease, he really meant autoimmune adrenalitis with atrophic adrenal glands. And he described it at the time when most patients would have tuberculosis type of primary adrenal insufficiency. So again, going back to the modern era, the most common subtype of primary adrenal insufficiency is autoimmune adrenalitis. The next 
probably five to 10% would be infectious etiology. It would be some sort of infiltration of adrenal gland. It would be congenital, for example, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Of course, if we remove adrenal glands, patients would develop primary adrenal insufficiency. So that's primary. Secondary adrenal insufficiency, nothing is wrong with adrenal glands, at least not to start with. But the adrenal glands do not work unless they are told to work. And what is the organ which is telling them to work? It's pituitary gland. So if pituitary gland is not sending the right signal to the adrenal glands and does not make them to produce cortisol, we call it secondary adrenal insufficiency. Outside from glucocorticoid-induced adrenal insufficiency, which is really a subtype of secondary adrenal insufficiency, the most common reason is some sort of pituitary mass. So patients with a big pituitary mass may have multiple pituitary deficiencies, including ACTH deficiency. And ACTH is that hormone which talks to the adrenal glands. So that's secondary adrenal insufficiency. And finally, I do want to distinguish glucocorticoid-induced adrenal insufficiency from other subtypes of secondary adrenal insufficiency because of how common it is. So why patients taking exogenous glucocorticoids develop adrenal insufficiency? Here's why. If someone takes supraphysiological dose of, let's say, prednisone or hydrocortisone or dexamethasone, all glucocorticoids, the pituitary gland is sensing those exogenous cortisol-like hormones, and it stops working because it doesn't have to. It's sensing that this person who is getting all this glucocorticoids is getting too much. And of course, there is no need to stimulate our own adrenal cortisol production. When pituitary gland stops working, what follows a, a few weeks later, adrenal glands atrophy. They don't receive the stimulus from the pituitary gland. They don't have to produce cortisol, so they shrink. So after a few months of this, adrenal insufficiency is quite complete. So what would happen if that person suddenly stops that prednisone? That patient may develop adrenal crisis because that person would be incapable of cortisol production on her or his own. So that is glucocorticoid-induced adrenal insufficiency. That's one we often probably don't think all much, that much about. Uh, we do use a fair amount of exogenous uh, glucocorticoids, and it's really important for us to talk to the patient to tell them not to suddenly stop it. And also for us to be aware that uh, these patients can have suppression of their endogenous glucocorticoids and require tapering. And we'll get into the treatment of that a little bit later, but uh, that's a subcategory that I think a lot of providers don't think about. So do most patients who have adrenal insufficiency have symptoms, or do we find this more commonly kind of serendipitously by an abnormal lab test done for some other reason? Yeah, so that's a good question. Classically speaking, most people do have symptoms, uh, but misdiagnosed for many months. And those are the symptoms that are very nonspecific. Fatigue, not feeling well, that sort of low mood, apathy. Uh, in fact, a lot of those patients are misdiagnosed with depression or chronic fatigue syndrome, or fibromyalgia, or some other sort of explanation. And only after months and months of this sort of like slow, insidious onset, someone may think about cortisol. Someone in the medical team may think about cortisol, measure it, and diagnose the patient. A few, a minority of patients with adrenal insufficiency may present acutely. 
with an adrenal crisis. And that would usually be precipitated by some sort of acute sickness, for example, gastroenteritis or pneumonia or bladder infection. Those are the people who would not tolerate that infection as people without adrenal insufficiency and develop low blood pressure, probably would have a profound illness and would have to be admitted to the hospital. And that's when the medical team is alerted towards all this constellation of symptoms, which could be adrenal crisis and adrenal insufficiency would be diagnosed. Other than the blood pressure findings, are there any common physical findings that may suggest adrenal insufficiency? Yeah, it depends on subtype. If it's a primary adrenal insufficiency, I would say that would be the easiest one to diagnose clinically because patients are usually more sick and present with more symptoms and actually develop weight loss. Now, what I've been noticing, at least over the last 10 years here in the United States, patients with adrenal insufficiency are actually less likely to develop weight loss than previously. It is possibly because of our diet or maybe because we are diagnosing our patients a bit earlier than before. But Weight loss is almost always present in primary adrenal insufficiency. So what are those clinical symptoms? Fatigue, dizziness, lightheadedness, weight loss, low mood, depression. And if we actually measure electrolytes, which is a common thing to consider, we may find hyponatremia and hyperkalemia in those patients with primary adrenal insufficiency, because not only that they have cortisol deficiency, they also have aldosterone deficiency. In secondary adrenal insufficiency, we would not see that. They may have some hyponatremia, but very unlikely hyperkalemia. Why? Because ACTH, the pituitary gland, does not regulate aldosterone production. It regulates cortisol and androgen production, but not aldosterone. So patients with secondary adrenal insufficiency have a preserved aldosterone production and are less likely to develop hypotension and hypovolemia, but may have hyponatremia. So those are the patients who are more difficult to diagnose and may, may present with symptoms for months to years before the diagnosis is made. So we may even get some clues on very commonly done lab tests, such as electrolytes, uh, not even mentioning the various hormone levels, but uh, uh, hyponatremia, so forth, potassium. Okay. Exactly. Let's see uh, what happens if we don't discover this at an early stage. What are the potential more serious complications it could develop? Well, adrenal crisis is the most feared one. I've described a little bit of how adrenal crisis may be diagnosed. And of course, if the patient happens to be in the emergency room and in the hospital, that patient usually survives with uh, enough uh, IV hydration and eventual cortisol supplementation. But there's always a concern that undiagnosed and untreated adrenal insufficiency would result to adrenal crisis and death. Let's say we have a patient comes into our office and the provider suspects adrenal insufficiency. What should that provider do to start an investigation? What's necessary? The best first approach would be baseline cortisol. And if you have access to it, baseline ACTH and DHA sulfate. Let me explain why this would give you all the information you need. Well, cortisol by itself is definitely helpful if it's very low, but it may not completely exclude adrenal insufficiency by itself if it's borderline because cortisol is uh, following a circadian rhythm. 
secretion. And depending on what circadian rate that patient has, we may not actually be measuring their cortisol at its peak. And that's where ACTH and DHA sulfate comes along. Because if in a primary adrenal insufficiency, you see that ACTH is very high, usually 100 times higher than normal, we've made our diagnosis. There is nothing else that could present with very low cortisol and very high ACTH, only primary adrenal insufficiency. If it's secondary adrenal insufficiency, ACTH would be normal or low or undetectable. So ACTH is not particularly trustworthy. And that's why I recommend DHA sulfate measurement as a first line testing. Because if you see that DHA sulfate is low or lowish, I am more likely to pursue additional testing for adrenal insufficiency afterwards. Why DHA sulfate is helpful? Well, because DHA sulfate is really a reflection of ACTH production or reflection of adrenal gland functioning. So if DHA sulfate is low, either adrenal glands are not functioning properly or adrenal glands are not stimulated by ACTH. So based on ACTH, DHA sulfate and cortisol is the first thing to do. And if it is uh, consistent with primary adrenal insufficiency, we are done. If it is consistent with secondary adrenal insufficiency, but is a bit borderline, we may want to do additional tests and we call those dynamic tests. So let's say we have a patient, we've diagnosed adrenal insufficiency. Can you go through the management of the different types, primary, secondary, and glucocorticoid excess? Yeah. So I think it's, again, important to remember what's deficient in different subtypes. So first, what is a common thing that is deficient among all types of adrenal insufficiency? It's two hormones, cortisol and DHA. What is unique to primary adrenal insufficiency is that zona glomerulosa is also destroyed. So those patients do not have aldosterone production. Going with that, if we have a person with primary adrenal insufficiency, those patients need three hormones, which is cortisol supplement, aldosterone supplement, and we definitely can consider DHA supplement, though that is a bit debatable. So cortisol can be supplemented with either hydrocortisone, the most common way to supplement cortisol, or prednisone. It's important to keep in mind different potencies. For example, the usual physiological dose to replace adrenal insufficiency, whether it's primary or secondary, is around 20 milligrams of hydrocortisone per day. The majority of it, let's say 15, is administered right on waking, and the rest of it, 5 milligrams, is administered 6 to 8 hours after the first dose. If we are to use prednisone, which is a bit more rare, we would use 5 milligrams of prednisone, which is equivalent to 20 to 25 milligrams of hydrocortisone per day. Because prednisone is longer acting, we would administer all of it in the morning, five milligrams on waking and no more prednisone throughout the day. So hydrocortisone and prednisone would be probably the most commonly used to replace cortisol. If it's a person with primary adrenal insufficiency, we need to replace aldosterone. And so far, the only medication we have available to us is fludrocortisone. Fludrocortisone comes as one single strength, at least here in the United States, which is 100 micrograms per tablet. And that's the usual dose that patients require for primary adrenal insufficiency. We actually do have some biomarkers that can help us adjust fludrocortisone dose. 
electrolytes, sodium and potassium. We can look at renin plasma activity to make sure that it's normal. And we can definitely do physical exam to make sure that there are no signs of aldosterone deficiency. Most of my patients are on 100 microns per day, but I have people take only 50 microns per day, and some people take 300 microns per day, depending on their requirements. So remember, fludrocortisone is not needed in secondary adrenal insufficiency. That's, that's only in primary adrenal insufficiency. And finally, DHA supplement. DHA is a weak androgen or weak male hormone. So this is why the, the adrenal community was wondering whether DHA supplementation would be useful specifically to women with adrenal insufficiency. Why women and not men? Well, because men do have testosterone production, which is a strong male hormone from the testicles. So even if they lose the weak male hormone, DHA, it does not seem to make a huge difference in their quality of life. It's a totally different matter in women with adrenal insufficiency because their only source of male hormone is that DHA production from the adrenal gland and quality of life is important. So actually there were quite a few studies summarized in a systematic review and meta-analysis in 2009, looking at DHA supplementation in women with primary and secondary adrenal insufficiency, showing minimal but statistically significant improvement in quality of life, in mood, in sex drive, and in energy level. So what does it mean? Cortisol supplementation in primary and secondary adrenal insufficiency, it's a no-brainer, everyone needs to have that. Fludrocortisone in primary adrenal insufficiency, everyone with primary adrenal insufficiency needs to at least to be considered for that. And DHA, I do it on a trial basis. I talk about it with every woman with adrenal insufficiency. I talk about the data. I talk about the subjective findings that women may notice with DHA replacement. And if there is a desire, we do it for six months and we reach normal DHA sulfate concentrations in the blood. And if my patient feels it's worthwhile, the impact, we continue DHA supplement. If not, we stop it. So that's sort of my approach to DHA supplementation. I think it's important also here to mention the sick day rules. Patients with adrenal insufficiency have increased requirements for cortisol replacement when they're sick. I usually like dividing it in two. One, if you're sick, but you're still able to eat. That would be the case to increase hydrocortisone by around double or triple. And in that case, for a person who usually takes 20 milligrams of hydrocortisone per day, that person would probably benefit from taking 10 to 20 milligrams every six hours for the time that person is sick. Sick day rule number two is inject glucocorticoid when you're sick and you are unable to take oral cortisol. The most common situation here would be gastroenteritis when there may be vomiting going on or diarrhea, and we're not completely sure how much of that hydrocortisone is being absorbed. And in that case, three things could be used. One is four milligram dexamethasone injection per 24 hours. Two, methylprednisolone, 20 to 40 milligrams every 12 to 24 hours, or hydrocortisone. 50 milligrams Q6 hours. And all my patients get an in-depth education session on how to self-inject as not to delay the injection when they are sick. I know it was a long answer. No, it was a great answer. I'm just thinking adrenal insufficiency is relatively uncommon. We rarely see it in the outpatient clinic in terms of being a primary care provider. 
it sounds like the evaluation and certainly the management is a little bit complicated. Do these patients, should they be seen by an endocrinologist at some point? I definitely think that primary and secondary renal insufficiency uh, patients need to be seen by endocrinologists. And depending on whether that renal insufficiency is temporary or not, this follow-up needs to be done yearly. There are some other aspects to adrenal insufficiency that I have not discussed yet. For example, in primary adrenal insufficiency, what an adrenal endocrinologist would also do, in addition to management and talking about special situations and the sick day rules, we would also look for other autoimmune disorders on a yearly basis. And those patients with adrenalitis, with Addison's disease, are at risk for other autoimmune disorders, 40 to 50% risk of developing thyroid autoimmune problems, celiac disease, B12 deficiency, or pernicious anemia. So this is something that is included in our yearly follow-up. In those with secondary adrenal insufficiency, yearly endocrine follow-up would also include treatment of other pituitary deficiencies, because it's very common for those people with secondary adrenal insufficiency to have more than one pituitary deficiency. And that could be secondary hypothyroidism or growth hormone deficiency or other pituitary deficiencies. Now, if it's glucocorticoid-induced adrenal insufficiency, I think those are the people who, after one proper evaluation of his endocrinologist and a very in-depth education session, can be continued to follow in primary care settings with appropriate sort of advice for retesting their adrenal function. Can you go over the exogenous glucocorticoid use and when a patient needs to be tapered and if they need to be tapered, how should we be doing that? Yeah, so it's very difficult answer because there are so many situations and so, so many different scenarios to consider. But let me try to at least give some general idea about that. So it very much depends as far as like, does the patient need to be tapered? Very much depends on the duration of the glucocorticoid use. For example, if I see in the clinic a person who has been on high dose of prednisone for two years and actually looks like that person has iatrogenic Cushing syndrome because of all this prednisone, I know that will be a long road to recovery. So in that case, it very much depends how much prednisone that person has been taking. Is it 20 milligrams a day? Is it 15 milligrams a day for the last two years? Is it 10 milligrams a day? The general approach is to consider the duration and the dose of exogenous glucocorticoid treatment to individualize the duration and the speed of tapering of glucocorticoid. It's easier to give a specific example now. So let's say I've had a person on 20 milligrams of prednisone for two years. And now that patient's medical team feels that prednisone is no longer required. Let's say this person has rheumatoid arthritis and now is doing very well in metotrexate. So that answers my question number one. Prednisone is not required for any non-endocrine reason. Number two is, what are the symptoms this patient has? Uh, did the patient try to decrease prednisone before and struggled with it? I will consider that in advising how to taper it. I would probably start by going down by five milligrams until prednisone 10 milligrams a day is reached. So if person is taking 20, 
that person would go to 15 milligrams of prednisone daily for the next one to two weeks, and then to 10 milligrams daily for one to two weeks. And that's when I would do it very slowly, go down by one milligram every couple of weeks until physiological dose of prednisone is reached, which would be around five milligrams each morning. And at that time, I will know that this person's hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is starting to recover. And that would be the time to start testing for that recovery. Before talking about recovery, I just wanted to share that it's very difficult for patients to go down on prednisone. It's very addictive substance. And what usually happens, and patients need to be counseled about it, is every time prednisone is decreased, a person would develop aches and pains and fatigue and anxiety and tachycardia, palpitations. It's very scary unless the patient knows that that's normal and to expect it. So that's the most common reason why a lot of patients fail to taper down prednisone. So unless they know that it's normal and it's not that something new is developing, they would not be able to taper down. So Irina, it's been a great discussion on adrenal insufficiency. Can you kind of summarize by giving us maybe two or three key points, which kind of review and quick order the... Uh symptoms and evaluation management of adrenal insufficiency? Absolutely. Well, first, um, I think it's important to keep adrenal insufficiency in mind whenever you see a patient with nonspecific symptoms. Having said that, remember that adrenal insufficiency is suspected many times by this ruled out. We can have borderline cortisol for all kinds of reasons other than adrenal insufficiency. But certainly thinking about adrenal insufficiency and performing the first-line testing, which would be A-stage DHE sulfur and cortisol, is a great idea. Second take-home message, consider endocrine evaluation if that initial testing is abnormal. If it's extremely abnormal, don't wait until the person sees an endocrinology. Start hydrocortisone, 20 milligrams a day. And don't give hydrocortisone in the evening because um, in the evening and at night, we should not be having cortisol production. Otherwise, your patient will not sleep. We've been discussing adrenal insufficiency with Dr. Irina Bankos, an endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic. Irina, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.